0: I would say I've been interested in lifts a lot longer than I've had a blog. I grew up with the internet kind of up and coming, so I, I followed a lot of technological websites of different kinds. So spring of 2015, I just was had a quiet period in my life when I wasn't working for a couple weeks between seasons and uh, thought it would be cool to create a dedicated website just about lifts with news that was happening. I started it just with WordPress.com and it grew from there.
1: Welcome to the storm. I'm your host, Stuart Winchester. The Storm Skiing Podcast explores the business, history, and culture of Northeast skiing. You can subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com to get all Storm Skiing podcasts and content as soon as they're live. You can download the Storm Skiing Podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and Pocket Casts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. Episode four. Peter Landsman, founder and editor of lift Blog. What's your favorite lift? I know you have one. You probably have a top five. Those lifts that you gravitate to as soon as you get to the mountain and you end up lapping all day long. Maybe it's because they have the terrain you like. Maybe it's because of the scenery. Uh, maybe it's that one lift at the always busy resort that never has a line. For me, top five, Castle Rock Double at Sugarbush, Bear Mountain Quad at Killington, single at mrg skyline express at Vail, sundown express at steamboat i could lap any of those all day long all week long all season long put me in any of those in skis and i'm happy when i'm heading to a new area one of the first things i check out is the lift system what do they have where do they have it what kind of terrain does it access if you want to know what's going on in the lift world as soon as it's happening liftblog.com is the place to go there are plenty of websites focused on lifts This is the best one, and it isn't close. Peter does an incredible job with this site. It is always up to date. Peter joined me on the show to talk about new lifts in the East and throughout the continent. He gives me his top five lifts. Let's go. My guest today is the founder and editor of Lift Blog, which attracts 40,000 unique monthly visitors with its exhaustive coverage of the world of ski lifts, tramways, and gondolas. He's also a lift supervisor at Jackson Hole where you oversees the aerial tram and gondola teams. Peter Landsman is my guest. Peter, thank you so much for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me. So Big
1: Red, I mean, that's Peter, that's not just A-lift, that's D-lift. That might be the alpha lift in North America. What's it like for a guy who lives for this stuff to be the one managing that thing?
0: Oh, it's definitely not, Um uh, Everybody knows that lift. It was a big deal when the owners of Jackson Hole announced that they were going to retire the old one. And then they, at that time, didn't say what was going to happen with the new one or whether there was going to be a new one. And then uh, they decided a little bit later to spend the $32 million to build a new new Big Red. And it's been a great success. Everybody loves it. Were you there
1: when that whole thing went down? Were they going to replace it or weren't they?
0: I was not. I was in college at that point, followed it. Uh, I didn't have a blog yet at that point, but just followed it personally. And then I started there in 2012, and that was just a couple years after the new tram opened.
1: And were you managing that team last year?
0: Um, it depends on the season. Every season, uh, we sort of go through a shuffle and take turns doing different different segments of the mountain. Uh, last summer, I was more involved with the gondolas. There's two gondolas now. So this is my first summer being a tram supervisor.
1: And, and last winter, were you on the tram?
0: Last winter, I was at the new gondola called Sweetwater. Sweetwater.
1: Have you done the tram during the winter season?
0: Yeah. Um, one of the first years I was there, I was just a tram operator, and uh, that's a whole different experience uh, being in the cars all day long. Uh, you talk to a lot of people.
1: So, so what's that like? What's it like being on the Jackson Hole tram on a powder day? I mean, you, you know, take us through what it's like to get it up and running. What time do you get there, and, and how do you work with patrol to get that moving?
0: So every day at Jackson hole, we, uh, we have a forecast the night before that comes out. There's different levels. Um, they call it RPK forecast, which stands for rendezvous peak. It's the weather station up there. And, uh, there's RPK zero, one, two, and three. And one is a couple inches. Two is half a foot or so. And then, uh, RPK three is around a foot, of uh, forecast snow. So depending on that forecast is there's a start time and, uh, The tram crew gets in on an RPK two or three really early to get patrol up to the mountain. And the uh, dispatch center for the whole mountain is also, for the patrol is at the top. So how early Uh, is early? Six, six in the morning, 530 in the morning. And it's staggered. So, you know, the same operator's not coming in every day for a whole week at that time. Any ski mountain, any lift is going to be an early morning.
1: When you get there that early, are there already people lined up waiting to get on? Oh, yeah.
0: (laughs) Yeah. On a big day, we get there in the dark and the... There's somebody who's usually been there longer that's in the maze, some sort of awakeness with usually some coffee and entertainment of some kind.
1: You know, it's incredible. You see the pictures on social media of the lines at the tram on a powder day, and it's just overwhelming from the looks of it. Does that crowd get kind of rowdy as they're waiting? And obviously you can't send people up until patrol gives you a clear.
0: Every day is different. It's it's early in the morning, so it's not too rowdy, but, you know, every once in a while there's somebody who's who's uh, got some beers and getting ready for their powder day. Um, I mean, the big thing that riles people up is when you get somebody who's maybe come out of line to go get their breakfast sandwich and then they're trying to get back into their spot. Usually it's peaceful, but sometimes that can be a little rowdy.
1: Right. How hard is it to do that job on a powder day? You got a foot or two on the mountain. You just want to get out there and you're running the lift. Is that hard or, or you, just, you just get into the job and...
0: You know, we lifties we have a lot of crazy days at Jackson Hole on powder days when there's tons of people everywhere. And the nice thing about running lifts is they can only move people so fast. So it really doesn't matter necessarily how many people are backed up behind the the tram maze or the gondola maze. We're only doing 100 people at a time or eight people at a time or four people at a time, depending on the lift. For you personally, though, I mean, do you, when you want to be out on the mountain skiing, is it hard to
1: be there sending everyone else up, up to have fun?
0: No, I get... I get plenty of good skiing in, uh, you know, weekdays, off peak times, and then when it's a crazy busy holiday period, we all know we have a job to do. And I get a thrill out of sending other people up the mountain, even if I'm stuck at the bottom for a couple hours.
1: Do you get a chance to get a run in at the end of the day or something in there?
0: Oh, yeah. part of uh, We really try at Jackson Hole to get all of our lift staff skiing every day if they want to. Um, multiple runs, many runs. Um, that's one of the best things we can offer. But uh, as a supervisor too, this, this, the managers and supervisors, we get to part of supervising lifties is going around the mountain and checking in with everybody. And we have fourteen lifts now, so just going to the bottom, going to the top of different lifts, and saying hey, all day long, can uh, also involve some skiing.
1: Yeah, well, that's not a bad perk of the job. All right, well, let's talk about lift blog a little bit. Really great site. Really thorough. Really consistent. Uh, t- tell us the story of Lyft Blog. When did you start
0: it and why? Well, thank you for the compliment. I, I've, I would say I've been interested in Lyfts a lot longer than I've had a blog. I grew up, grew up with the internet kind of up and coming, um, so I, I followed a lot of technological websites of different kinds, whether that was computer websites or just, there's, I mean, there's a website for everything. After I started working at Jackson Hole, Um, At that time, I was seasonal, so I was only working winters and summers and sort of had about a month off in the spring and the fall. So spring of 2015, I just was sort of had a quiet period in my life when I wasn't working for a couple weeks between seasons and uh, thought it would be cool to create a dedicated website just about lifts with sort of news that was happening. And uh, I started it just with WordPress.com. I think it was $20 for the domain. I actually started with a different domain. And it grew from there.
1: And what was the reaction when you put that out there?
0: Uh, at first, it was there was not much. I mean, it it takes a long time to build up. I learned Google placement. There was another ski lift website at the time called ski org that had started way earlier in like two thousand two. And uh, that one, the owner of that had sold it, and it was sort of not as uh, it was. It hadn't been updated in a while, so I I saw an opening to create something that was more more news-centered and frequently updated.
1: One of the features that I really check out a lot on the site is these databases you have of planned lift projects. And you do a really good job of going around and scraping them all up. And what I'd like to do is just talk about some of the new lifts going in this season and the ones that you're most excited about. And I want to start on the East Coast because that's our target is uh, Northeast. You know, even though you're a Jackson guy, you're actually familiar with East Coast skiing. You went to college out here. Is that right?
0: Yeah. So I um, my mom's from the Northeast, so she knew all the uh, New England schools, and I ended up going to Colby in Waterville, Maine. So I skied for four years in New England. I I got to as many skiers as I could when I was there with still doing my schoolwork. So I, I particularly covered a lot of Maine, New Hampshire, Vermont, and I, uh, I enjoyed the Northeast, and I get back sometimes now for the block.
1: Which were your favorites when you were out here?
0: Uh, I, I had a New England pass. I really liked Sunday River. Uh, all those different mountains lined up. It just felt like it was a really big place with beautiful scenery, so I would it was a little further from where I lived, but I uh, I would go to Sunday River whenever I could. Great. So
1: looking at some of the lift projects we have coming up here in the Northeast this winter, wh- what are the ones that stand out to you?
2: Uh, Killington's got the new North Ridge Quad, which uh, is usually one of the first lifts to open in the East, so it'll be really nice to have a new uh, lift that can actually fit adults. Uh, the old chair over there was uh, pretty cramped, and I uh, heard They weren't able to always load it to capacity and full speed, so the new lift will be a big improvement there. What else? East Coast, uh, Bretton Woods in New Hampshire has the first eight-passenger gondola in the state, which is a pretty big deal. It's based to Summit. There's a new lodge at the top, and it's going to be able to go really fast, too. It's 1,200 feet a minute. Um,
1: And that, that gondola was supposed to open last year, wasn't it?
2: Correct, yeah. It uh, got a little bit of a late start, and there was er a lot of early snow last winter, so I'm not sure who, whether Doppelmayr or Bretton Woods or or both, decided it was best just to wait. Um, And then as part of that project, uh, the Fay Bands triple was also getting moved, so that that part was completed last year.
1: Nice, yeah. It actually looks like we're in for for an early winter again. We got about a foot of snow up north uh, yesterday into today, so it's a nice promising start.
2: Yeah, that sounds sounds good to me. I, I'm jealous.
1: <laughs> uh, you'll, you'll get there soon enough and, and blow right past us, I'm sure. Um, uh, as far as other projects in the Northeast, there's a couple of T-bars opening up. Can you talk about those projects a little bit?
2: Yeah. So a lot of these sort of uh, race academies, ski academies, have started to put in new T-bars. There, there are a couple things that are nice about them. They move fast. Uh, some of them are almost as fast as a detachable lift. Chairlift, but they cost a lot less, and you don't need a whole lot of staff to run them. So, especially uh, when a when a ski club is going to be paying for the operational cost of running the lift, they may not be able to afford a high speed chairlift, but they can definitely afford a high speed um, either T bar or, or platter lift. Um, so this year, Sunday River put one of those in with uh, Gould Academy on Lock Mountain, and that'll serve their race venue. And then uh, the other T bar is not actually a, a ski club; it's a Scutney. In Vermont, they uh, were able to get a used T-bar out of Quebec, and it's just going to go up part um service the lower part of the mountain, but but higher up than the rope tow that's been there. And that'll be great to reopen some of the mountain, not the whole thing that was serviced back in the day, but um, it'll be a lot better uh, vertical rise than the rope tow.
1: And Iskani kind of used to have a high-speed lift, isn't it, going all the way to the summit?
2: They did, yeah. In fact, it was such a rugged summit up there, they had to fly in that entire top terminal with a helicopter. So that lift was the first lift to go up as high as it did on that mountain. And then unfortunately after uh, the bankruptcy, that lift got sold to Crotchet and uh, flown, flown away.
1: Yeah, well, it, it, it's nice to have Crotchet back in business, but it's too too bad you lost the top part of Viscotne. But it's nice to see that mountain doing something and, and that's really, I believe, just community run now. I don't even know if they charge you to use it. I think it's donation-based. Just go up there and um, You can ride the rope toe, but now you'll have that T-bar as well, so that's a nice improvement there.
2: I think the staff are even volunteers. Like a lot of things in the ski business, the uh, one's, one man's trash is another's treasure, so lots of ski areas end up getting uh, good use out of somebody else's old lifts.
1: And then in southern Vermont, I, I think the one probably getting the most buzz around here is the new black chair going in at Magic.
0: Yeah, and that's their second new lift recently too. So good things happening there.
1: It's actually a, a, is moving over from Stratton. That Stratton's old um, snowball lift, uh, it, but you see that a lot. And that kind of surprised me. The first time I heard of this was when Silverton opened, and they they moved that lift out from Mammoth. And, and I had never just never occurred to me that you could do such a thing. But that's actually pretty common, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I would say this year it's a little bit less. There, there are fewer use lift projects right now. Maybe that's because the economy is doing so well. But yeah, it's surprising sometimes which lifts make it to another place and which lifts don't.
1: Is that risky at all? And then at uh, Hermitage Club is actually being liquidated. So there, you have a, an unusual circumstance where you may have a pretty new six-pack bubble on the market pretty soon.
0: Very, yeah, very uh, interesting situation there. and Nobody knows what's going to happen. Not only the six-pack, but they've also got a couple barely new SkyTrack fixed grip quads, which other skiers would probably love to have if they aren't kept where they are.
1: Yeah, especially that six-pack, I have to imagine. Is the resale value on those things pretty good? I mean, is someone going to be able to say okay, we can get a really good deal on a six pack right now if we swoop in and get this one from Hermitage Club?
0: I mean, it definitely has value. This kind of thing doesn't happen very often. And a lot of times it's all behind the scenes. So it's hard for me to say, but some of the value is definitely lost in that typically a detachable lift lasts about 25 to 30 years. And if you've already gone through five years or or six years, you know, you've lost some there, but It is a very nice lift with very low hours, so particularly if somebody has a a place where it's a similar length and vertical, then uh, they could get a pretty good deal.
1: And do they ever, when they move them, do they shorten them or or lengthen them? Or or does it pretty much have to be however it was originally set up?
0: They can do both. Um, I mean, you could add towers, but generally, if you're going to move a lift, it's better to put it in a little bit shorter place because then you have more selection of towers to choose from. And maybe you don't have to use all of them if they're not all the right heights.
1: And and how carefully is is the machinery calibrated to the, the original installation length?
0: That would be a good question for an engineer. It's, I mean, lifts get moved a lot. And I mean, generally any ski slope is going to have towers that are around the same heights and the motor, the motor is sized for a particular length and vertical drop. Particularly, it's easier to put a lift to a shorter, lower vertical place than it is to move it from a shorter to a longer slope. Speaking of moving
1: lifts, Wyndham actually moving a lift on mountain, which it's not a huge mountain to begin with, but they put in that six pack last year. And so they're moving their old quad. So that should help move people around that mountain a little bit.
0: Yeah. And I mean, particularly when you don't have to buy the lift, when you already have the lift, that's a great, um, and you just have the construction costs and engineering costs and the, the few upgrades if they're doing those, but you know, maybe painting, but yeah, if they have a good place to put it, so why not keep it?
1: So elsewhere in the east, moving up to Canada, Owl's Head is replacing its high-speed quad with a fixed-grip quad, and that's actually a pretty significant, historically speaking to the ski industry, a pretty significant lift. Can you talk about that lift a little bit?
2: Yeah, so I believe that that original high-speed quad was the first high-speed quad in the world from Breckenridge in the early 1980s, and it was moved to Owl's Head after Breck started getting into the six-pack game. A similar thing happened last year down at Beach Mountain in North Carolina where they had an old, a really old detachable lift that was getting to be hard to maintain, and they also replaced that one with a fixed grip quad. There's a lot of maintenance that goes into detachable lifts. It's not, even though the speed is, is double, um, fixed grip versus detachable, the, the maintenance cost is more, than, well more than double for a detachable lift. Um, those grips have have tons of moving parts and especially older detachable lifts they just cost a whole lot to maintain so there have been a few now cases where early detachable lifts have been replaced by simpler cheaper fixed grip lifts and uh, where it makes sense i think we'll see that happen uh, occasionally going forward
1: Yeah, i kind of thought for a while it was like the car manufacturers moving away from stick shifts in favor of automatic transmissions and automobiles where Eventually, you just wouldn't see them anymore, but it feels like we're seeing kind of a resurgence in these fixed grip quads, a lot because of those maintenance costs you were talking about. But also, I I think just the initial cost is so much less.
2: Yep, both initial and maintenance, Um, especially like the Owl's Head case, it's I think it's about it's like three or four thousand feet long, which is not not huge. So the difference in ride time is really only a few minutes. And uh, especially with a, a loading carpet, which you can now put on a fixed grip lift, you can really keep it keep it moving about five hundred feet a minute, which is only a few hundred feet a minute difference in a a lot of detachable lifts.
1: Yeah, I, re- I read an article recently about we have a mountain out here in Massachusetts, Berkshire East. I don't know if you're familiar with that mountain. Yeah, they, Yeah, they, they were weighing. Yeah, it's a nice little mountain. Um, a little bit off the radar because it's so close to Vermont there, but they were weighing, you know, do we get a uh, high-speed quad or do we get a fixed trip And it was going to be a half million dollars every few years to replace the grips. And I just couldn't believe that it cost that much just to maintain it, just to do basic uh, something you have to do every few years on those lifts. And they ended up getting the carpet
2: instead. Parts. Parts and labor both are uh, definitely something that need to be considered in addition to the initial purchase cost.
1: Yeah, you look at that and, you know, I know the big mountains and especially Vail, they get a lot of flack for those high day tickets. And I know there's a whole conversation to be had about they want you to buy the pass, etc. But when you start to realize how much each lift costs and you look at a mountain like Vail, and I don't even know how many high speed lifts they have, probably 20 on that mountain it starts to make sense how much it costs to ski there because that infrastructure is phenomenally expensive to maintain.
2: When you when you work at a ski resort, you see all of the back end, and I, I would say it's basically like running a city. I mean, we have plumbers, electricians, mechanics for lifts, mechanics for vehicles. Every kind of trade you'd imagine is employed by ski resorts, and uh, none of that is cheap.
1: Yeah, it's incredible, especially you think about a mountain the size of Jackson Hole, where everything, you know, people are spending a lot of money to come there. When they come there, they expect it to be working right. So it's amazing the more I learn about it to to contemplate the whole operation. Uh, so speaking of huge, expensive lifts uh, and moving out west, out into your territory, last year the big headline in the lift world was the Ram Charger eight up at Big Sky. I'm sure you've, uh, I'm sure you made a pilgrimage up there to check that out. Uh, it doesn't seem like we have a similar marquee project this year. But what are you excited about out west?
2: There's a there's a bunch in Colorado. Not so much expansions this year, but more lift replacements. Crested Butte, Tiocalli was actually. Unserved by any lift last year, they closed the lift early. they did uh, actually never opened it last season, so there was a whole season without that lift and that's going to be a new fixed grip quad this year. Winter park, one of the backside lifts that was pretty congested was called Sunnyside, and that is going to be a high speed sixth person this year. One of the expansions is Copper Mountain they've uh, finally put a lift on Tucker Mountain, which used to be Cat Skiing area. It's kind of like uh Blue Sky Basin at Vail. It's not the back of the mountain, but the the front of the mountain behind the the main mountain. Um so that's like a whole new area for people to explore at Copper. What else? Oh, uh, Schweitzer up in Idaho, a really cool mountain uh that's just huge but kind of unknown. They actually replaced their uh, backside lift with two Two big lifts. Uh, One's a high-speed detachable quad and one's a triple. So they split that back bowl into into two different lifts.
1: What was the logic of doing that? What what are these two lifts going to do that that one lift wasn't able to do?
2: Yeah, so Schweitzer actually tried this on the front of the mountain uh, probably five years ago now, the same kind of thing. They used to have a fixed strip lift with a mid-station, and the thing with that is if it's really windy uh, and you can't run the top of the lift, it means you can't run the whole lift. So what they smartly decided was that if they split it in two and there's a big storm going on, you can run the lower section um, Mm. and and leave the upper section closed. The other thing in both those cases, they they did the longer section high speed and the shorter one is just... Fixed grip, so it adds some flexibility there as well.
1: Then, what about Steamboat? I think they're upgrading their gondola.
2: Yeah, so it's the same, uh, some of the components are being reused, but it's all new cabins. They're going to be really nice um, compared with the uh, ones that were pretty tired over the years. Really nice cabins. That is another gondola that's going to be able to go up to 1200 feet a minute, which is really fast, and it's also going to increase capacity because the cabins will be uh, closer together. So. It's still eight-person gondolas, but they'll be much nicer cabins and higher capacity.
1: Yeah, and it's steamboat. It's been a while since I've been there, but that's pretty much the main workhorse to get people out of the base area, right?
2: It's huge. So Altera also has approval to build a second gondola um, oh, wow. called Basher up to a new uh, learning area. And I uh, I don't know this, but I'm guessing they were deciding whether which project to do first, and they ended up going with the workhorse one that everybody everybody rides today. Just get that uh, replaced first, and then maybe they'll look at the other gondola.
1: And I know I was just talking about Vail having a, a space-age lift network, but they have actually a T-bar going in, don't they?
2: Yeah, so that's another... Similar to Sunday River, it's a Doppelmayr T-Bar, and that's in partnership with uh, Ski and Snowboard Club Vale. and it's uh, above the mid-station on Golden Peak. Um, It's actually going to go up. It is an expansion, so it's actually going to go up higher on that Golden Peak left side, and uh, sometimes those runs will be just for ski racing, and then other times the T-Bar will run for the public. So uh, Vail is is getting even bigger this year. (laughs) Hard to believe.
1: And then right at home for you, Jackson. Uh, anything new going in? We were just talking about raising the capacity on the Sweetwater gondola.
2: Yeah, so we have a new quad chair called Eagles Rest right at the base area, and that we had a, a double chair back in the day ran a similar in a similar location, but it was re- removed when the, the new gondola went in just for space reasons. But this uh, this new beginner chair will be great. It's uh, not right in the base area. It's kind of up a little bit, out of the way so families and kids will be able to go up there, and it's all green runs off of Eagle's Rest, so something that that's definitely same... needed in Jackson.
1: Yeah, is that the same area as the Sweetwater beginning area?
2: Yeah, it's all kind of uh, adjacent to each other in the base area. We've now got chair chairlift for beginners, the bottom of the Sweetwater gondola, and Eagle's Rest are all beginner lifts.
1: Can you talk a little bit about the capacity increase on Sweetwater?
2: Yeah, so Sweetwater had 48 cabins, and it's going up to 62, so that's a pretty pretty big jump. The cabins will just be closer together, and that lift's become a real workhorse. I didn't really know how it would shake out when that opened, how many people would ride it, but it's turned into be quite the uh, quite the busy lift between the three stations. Uh, it's a great way to get up to Casper and Teton quickly.
1: Yeah, I mean, Jackson Hole's always had the reputation as just being this bruiser with the death-defying terrain, but I guess the, the stuff they've done the last couple of years has really helped make it more welcoming for that beginner and family demographic, right?
2: Yeah, we've noticed a lot of times people come here in groups and some of the group is up at Corbett's on the tram all day and then some of the group isn't, isn't quite at that level and wants to still have a similar experience. So uh, the the focus the last few years has definitely been on the north side of the mountain.
0: Anything else worth noting in the west? Squaw Valley Alpine Meadows has a really cool two-stage lift with a mid-station going in uh, called Treeline Cirque.
1: So Squaw Valley Alpine Meadows is interesting. A lot of proposals for a gondola to connect those two, if I'm not mistaken. Are you optimistic that that project will ever happen?
0: I'm cautiously optimistic. I mean, it's California, so it's. I think there's been some opposition, but they have moved the alignment away from certain sensitive lakes, and they got rid of a component, the avalanche hazard reduction component, which was going to be Gazex automated exploders. They got, they took that out. So I think. We'll have to wait and see, but uh, that would be a really cool project if it happens.
1: And with the way those mountains sit in relation to another, it's probably going to be a, a lift connection between them, right? Not a ski connection.
0: Right. It's going to be a three-part gondola. You'll be able to get off of the mid stations, but the middle section is kind of going to be no man's land. You won't be able to ski from one to the other.
1: So elsewhere in the West, going up to Canada again, Revelstoke looks like putting in finally a new lift. Uh, what's the significance of them finally getting back into expansion mode
0: well the lift is an important one just because they they're sort of lacking beginner and intermediate terrain up, up at elevation um when i went to Revelstoke a while back it was a, a leaner year and they i saw how they really didn't have enough terrain with with reliable snow for beginners so this new lift is up high at the top of the gondola uh, with three or four nice trails and this is the first lift investment since the original all the original lifts went in in two years and it opened right right about the height of the recession so they took a big pause on expanding terrain and now they're getting back at it yeah incredible
1: mountain terrible timing Uh, but good to see them getting back to it out there I wanna talk a little bit here about Vale. You know, Vail just bought Peak Resorts, as you know, uh, which is a huge deal out here. Hunter Mountain in New York, uh, Mount Snow. Um, now they'll also own, uh, obviously they own Okemo and Stowe. And then they'll have four mountains in New Hampshire. Vale has done a really good job from my point of view of investing in their Western mountains, really putting in first-class lift infrastructure. A little bit of trepidation out here that maybe that same level of investment won't apply to their quote-unquote feeder mountains. How do you see Vail approaching these East Coast mountains as far as that infrastructure investment goes?
0: I think all, these, all of these big companies, whether it's Boyne or, or Powder or Vail, they have the amount that they can spend on capital improvements every year and uh, each each resort makes their list and every year some do better than others there's certain priorities like this year they're very much prioritizing stevens pass which i think is a good sign for the northeast considering stevens pass is not a destination resort it's a a drive to medium-sized mountain and they're getting a really big lift investment multiple new lifts this summer. So that should bode well. Um, That Stevens Pass is is not exactly one of their largest mountains. A lot of the peak resorts are sitting pretty good. I mean, the big Hunter project, the big Mount Snow project lift-wise, and they've done a ton of snowmaking infrastructure. So if some of the peak resorts don't get a lot right off the bat, it's because I think they've seen a lot of investment already recently. And and the same could be said for Okemo too.
1: Yeah. Hunter's in great shape. Uh, Two high-speed six-packs there. Mount Snow, They've invested a ton in that. Uh, Okimo, they just announced an expansion. Or not an expansion, uh, a capital project. Um, Stowe is Stowe. It's it's always been in good shape. I think uh, the big concern is Aditash, which had a lot of problems with their summit triple last year. And mm-hmm. you know, concerns that and that, when that summit triples closed down, they won't let you hike up. That just closes down a significant part of that mountain. So really a lot of concerns about that mountain and, and the long-term accessibility of it.
0: I think every, every time Vale makes one of these acquisitions, they pretty quickly make a sort of a signature announcement of one thing that they're going to i think summit detachable lift would be uh I, I can't think of many people that would be disappointed by that i think that would be a pretty popular uh move by them Oh, absolutely. absolutely. And so you, I mean,
2: go ahead.
0: South, you, going south a little bit too, I was recently at the the uh, Snowtime, Whitetail, Liberty, and Round Top mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania, and those are all doing pretty well too. I mean, a bunch of new quad chairs at, at all three of them. So
1: Yeah, they're now now under the their third, doing owner, pretty well. third owner in, in two years, so hopefully they'll do well. I think the big concern down there is even though the Epic Pass is a great deal considering what you get, it's still a lot more than what they were paying before for their local mountains, so... We'll see how that sorts out because sometimes Vale does do the the local type passes. So we'll see what they do there. So you don't worry about Vale spreading themselves too thin with now over thirty mountains here in North America.
0: I don't think so. I think they've gotten pretty good at what they do and integration and they've got a lot of mountains, but there's in terms of the overall ski industry, still a chunk of a much larger business.
1: Shifting topics here. One of the things you do a really good job of uh, is
0: rooting out these
1: master plans that these mountains put out. And and sometimes they don't publicize these well. And and I don't know why. Maybe it's because sometimes they're just theoretical and they don't go anywhere. But of the master plans that are out there, are there any that you're really excited about? I know Big Sky, for example, is in the midst of, of their Big Sky 2025 plan. I mean, they have a lot scheduled for that mountain. But any others that, that really stand out to you?
0: Mammoth Mountain. The CEO of Altera is Rusty Gregory, and he used to be head of Mammoth Resorts. And there is a ton of potential. That, it's a great mountain to begin with, but they're talking, their master plan has multiple new gondolas, six packs, potentially eight packs. It's a huge mountain already with a ton of lifts, but they definitely have some projects that are in the pipeline. And I hope those make it towards the top of the Altera priorities. because The mountain certainly deserves it.
1: So are you talking about not just lifts, new lifts, but new terrain that those lifts service?
0: Uh, Mammoth, there's a little bit of new terrain in their master plan, but a lot of it is is just sort of re, realigning a lot of different lifts to, to better service them out. They, right now, they have a ton of fixed grip lifts that are sort of duplicates. And the plan is sort of to combine some lifts and realign rather than opening too much new terrain. It's, it's more building bigger new lifts where it makes sense.
1: I mean, that's a huge mountain. It's also a very busy mountain just because of where it is and its proximity to the population centers in California. So is the idea here to spread the people out a little bit better?
0: Yeah, I think so. And uh, another big factor there is weather. So sometimes with bigger lifts strategically placed, you could run certain lifts in higher winds and storms than others.
1: Any other uh, master plans that, that have your attention right now?
0: Oh, the the big another big one is Whistler Blackcomb. Uh, a lot of the Canadian resorts put their master plans online, and with the province, and uh, there's some huge terrain expansion opportunities at Whistler Blackcomb on the Whistler side, particularly, and uh, that would be pretty exciting.
1: And what would that look like? Are, are we talking new face, new peak?
0: They've got planned for a whole new base area and then they would go all the way up to the to the top too. so near the, the peak chair. Uh, there's an area called Bagel Bowl and they talk- there's a plan for a lift there and then even further over. It seems like it's almost limitless opportunity at Whistler Blackham for expansion, both base village wise and up in the Alpine.
1: And what is it that that they have to get through? Is it the environmental reviews? Is it uh, it just having the capital to do it? Obviously, being owned by Vail, the odds are that if it can be done, if anyone can do it, they can do it. But what is it that they have to get through to make that happen?
0: I'm not super familiar with the Canadian, Canadian system, but my sense is that it's easier to get big projects done in Canada than it is in a lot of the United States. I believe Whistler Blackcomb recently got their master plan approved, particularly with First Nations partnership. So I think they are in a good place in terms of both with the government and with the Native American or Native Canadian First Nations. I think they're in a good spot where when they want to when they want to spend a bunch of money on expansion, they, they probably can.
1: So out here on the East Coast, the Balsams Master Plan has been floating around for quite a while. Are you familiar with that project? And what do you think about it?
0: I am familiar with it. I think it would be great like any major project if if it were me investing a bunch of money in the northeast i would probably start with a somewhere that's already got some infrastructure like a saddleback there's also a big squaw up in maine that is still operating but has a lot of expansion potential but the balsams you just basically have to start over because the lifts are have been closed for i think 10 years now and it's going to take a ton of money to start over completely
1: yeah, and if that does go in, I mean, that you're talking a lot of lifts. The acreage target that they have would make it bigger than Killington.
0: Yeah, I've never been there, but it, I mean, the plan looks like similar to what Sunday River became, which makes sense given who designed a lot of it.
1: Hopefully we'll see something happen there. You know, you mentioned Saddleback. Just announced last week that terrace Group, uh, investment group out of, out of Massachusetts has agreed to buy Saddleback. So that area has been sitting idle, I believe, for four seasons, and they've said that it won't be up and running again until next year, until 2020. What kind of condition are those lifts in that are sitting on that mountain?
2: Uh, it's, it's a little tough to say I haven't been there, but I believe the first couple years, there was still some maintenance going on um especially on the newer lifts that they knew were going to get reused if the place reopened so up on top there's a quad chair that was pretty much brand new when the thing when the place closed and also down at the bottom south branch is fairly new um and i, I believe those lifts had some maintenance done during the closure the there are then the lifts that were planned to be replaced no matter what, like the Rangeley Double, uh, which are still planned to be replaced, so probably no maintenance going on there. Uh, but, but just in general, anytime something sits for a long time like that, it's going to have to be gone through with a with a fine-tooth comb, and I'm sure there's going to be a lot of um, checking of things and, and parts that need to be replaced.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people were hoping when that was announced they'd get it open for this winter. But you start thinking about the sheer amount of things that have to be done. and, And that's probably too tall of an order even to get it open later in the winter.
2: Yeah, I think so. As soon as I read it, I thought I, maybe if this it, had it happened in June or July, it could be a possibility. But November, uh, there's a lot that's already gone on or ha- need to have gone on by now in order to open for a winter.
1: Now, that Rangely Double, that that's a pretty old lift. I believe it dates to the 60s. What happens to these lifts when they're just too old to be reused? Do they just get scrapped?
2: So that lift actually... As part of the Barry's big investment when they own the, the mountain, they actually did replace parts of it. So they replaced the bottom terminal and the top terminal with Doppelmayr equipment. Um, so those those two stations are probably pretty desirable. Um, at one point, they were for sale on a on a ski industry classified website. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me if those get reused in some capacity, either at Saddleback or somewhere else. But those those are original towers from the 60s. They're lattice style towers, so those will most likely be uh, going in the recycling.
1: Right. They're still on Boyne Mountain in Michigan. They still have parts from the original single chair at Sun Valley. So I and I know that that's actually that lift. I know that mountain uh, because I used to ski it growing up. And so that lift is rarely used. So I don't I don't know if that's a pretty rare thing when they keep something around or if that's just a novelty or, or or what the story is with that. But but it sounds like other than those few pieces on the Rangeley Double, there's not much chance of that happening with any parts of this lift.
2: Yeah, if you if you'll remember there was a an incident at Sunday River a few years back where uh foundation let loose on an older lift. Uh in the summertime nobody was hurt, but they ended up having to replace the whole top terminal of, of one lift and an entire other lift at Sunday River. Um and so after that, uh, my understanding is the state of Maine sort of wanted to see more documentation for some of these older lifts and uh, check all the foundations and make sure that this something similar couldn't happen again. Um, and I think that's part of what went into Saddleback looking to replace
1: Rangeley. And have you dug into the plans at all? I, I've seen variations. I think the old plan called for a fixed grip quad. Uh, the, the latest quote I saw was a high speed quad. Do, are you familiar at all with what they're planning over there to get that place up and running again as far as lifts are concerned?
2: Just what I read in the newspaper, I was I was very happy to read that they're looking at a detachable because it is a really long lift in a cold place. Um, I hope they know how much they cost to buy and maintain <laughs> uh, because that is an example of somewhere that really really needs a detachable lift. I'd, I'd rather see that one lift go High speed and, and nothing else. If, if that was all they could afford, because it's super important that that's their base, out of base people mover, and I don't think anyone really wants a six thousand foot fixed grip quad.
1: And how much are you looking at when you're talking about a high speed detachable quad? Do you do you off the top of your head know just an average of how much something like that would cost?
2: At least five million. Wow. It depends a lot on how long it is and how much capacity you're looking for, but generally five to ten million.
1: And when you were there in school out in Maine, did you get a chance to ski saddleback much?
2: couple times, yeah. I went there. Uh, every time I went there, it was a powder day, it seemed like. And uh, yeah. it's it's a beautiful mountain. I mean, I don't, did you get a chance to ski it when it was open?
1: No, I've never been out. It's it's so far from me. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, from uh, York,
2: so. it's right on the Appalachian Trail. Um, just there's no... No real civilization around it, so you get to the top and you feel like you're in just total wilderness.
1: How does it compared to Sugarloaf and Sunday River, the other big ones in
2: Maine? The difference is there's really not much at the base. There's no village, so it's it's a beautiful base lodge, and you park, and there's a few condos, but it's more of a more of a kind of wild, almost like a backcountry type experience. The the trails are fairly narrow and. The And just
1: beautiful at the top. Yeah, the trail map looks phenomenal. So really rooting for them, really hoping they can get back online. Um, Maybe you'll get a chance to ski it if you... I I know you seem to make pilgrimages east.
2: People keep building new lifts over there, so it's an excuse to get out there.
1: I just want to go back to the Ram Charger 8 for a moment. Obviously a huge investment for Big Sky. But do you think this is one of those things where now that it's out there, we're going to see more of these things, more of these 8-pack lifts? Or do you think this is just a one-off?
0: I think we will see a few. And there's only so many places where it makes sense to have such a large lift, but I think there's definitely potential for a few more. Places like Mammoth, where you have uh, just these base areas where tons and tons of people start their day. Lifts coming out of those places, it, it makes sense. Um, and, and places where the owners can't afford it, like like an Altera.
1: Right, so those workhorse lifts to just get people moving out of the, the really busy areas, get them off the mountain mm-hmm. so they can spread out a little bit. One other thing I want to talk about, Peter, is uh, your blog doesn't just focus on ski lifts. You really cover lifts all around the world. And, and one of these, the really interesting things, the trends that I've seen in recent years, is this move towards using lifts as urban transportation alternatives. It's really especially Central and South America. What are some of the better projects that you've seen that are happening right now?
0: The two biggest are are uh, Medellin in Colombia, which is all uh, Poma gondola technology. They they have uh, I think it's five lines now open, more under construction, and then uh, La Paz in Bolivia, which has nine Doppelmayr gondolas open. They move a ton of people. They're very efficient, not over huge distances, but but medium distances. So cities that aren't aren't giant, but. Or, or somewhere where it's just an extension of a subway line or an extension of a commuter train line where you want to go up a hill or something like that. I think the biggest obstacle is not technical, but just in terms of getting people to realize that this technology is available it works. It moves a lot of people. People people enjoy riding on gondolas and chairlifts. They uh, they're kind of unique. You, know, you get a beautiful view. So I think we're uh, we're getting there in the United States, but certainly the rest of the world is kind of schooling us right now. Yeah. Do you think another
1: obstacle is just the uh, the nimbys, the people who just don't want to see the stuff built because they don't like how it looks or see it as an imposition?
0: Yeah, I think that's true with pretty much any transportation projects. It's going to go through a neighborhood, but to, to have to dig underground is just so expensive when you can put towers and the, the foundations are relatively tiny. And uh, I think that's why part, partly why in South America it's been so successful is the governments there seem to be able to just put it where they want it. And uh, maybe there maybe there are fewer obstacles there.
1: And it just makes a lot of sense given the topography they have. Instead of moving people up and down the mountains on these little buses, you just whisk them up in these gondolas. And it it takes what can be an hour, two-hour trip to 10, 11 minutes.
0: Yeah, I mean, you have a choice of either going over or under. And underground is incredibly expensive. And over is relatively cheap and has the same outcome.
1: Right. And, you know, we're starting to see these not just for urban transportation, but other places as well. Disney, for example, putting in their Skyliner gondola.
0: I think the Disney system is a total game changer for the, for the industry. It's the most visited resort in the world of any kind. And for, for the, ma- the amount of people that are going to see that system and ride that system, I think it's going to be very helpful in terms of getting people to realize that gondolas are a real solution for moving large numbers of people in comfort and at a relatively low cost.
1: And what is that potential, Peter? I mean, where else should we be putting these things or thinking about putting lifts that we're not right now?
0: I mean, you look at Portland. Put it across where they had uh, obstacles. So it was in that case, it was trains and and uh, Interstate Five that they wanted to go over and up a hill. Washington D.C. has talked about it going across a river. Places where there's uh, Vancouver in British Columbia has. Uh, a pretty far along plan for a 3S gondola from a train station up to a university on a hill. So places where there's a a relatively short distance, but something in the way.
1: Yeah. You know, here in New York City, it's almost impossible to expand our transit system at this point because it's just so expensive. So they expanded our, they call it the Second Avenue subway, but it's really a a three station extension of the Q train that opened a couple years ago. That project was something on the order of a billion and a half dollars per station. It seems like lifts which could easily cross rivers, as the tram does right now going to Roosevelt Island, uh, would be a solution that we ought to consider to just get some infrastructure in place that could move a lot of people in a safe, efficient way.
0: Yeah, there have been, been quite a few proposals or ideas in New York, in various parts of New York that I've seen, but so far, none of them have gone particularly far, but that might just be because like a lot of American cities, it's hard to get anything done
1: it really is it's very frustrating cuz the trains are just crammed full at all times uh, and they're great cuz they run all the time but we need to do something cuz more people keep moving here and uh, we don't have the infrastructure to support it so okay so you know the last thing i want to talk about and this is just kind of out of the chairlift realm but as a Jackson Hole local i just wanted to get your input on this so it was the first year the icon pass last year and there seemed to be a lot of backlash and i'm curious as a guy who is on the ground How much of that was social media hype and how much of that was real frustration among the locals with the perceived influx of tourism?
0: I would say the frustration was real. It wasn't just on the Internet. There were a lot of people frustrated. I I think Jackson Hole has a lot of growing pains that predate Icon that kind of came to a head last year with a good snow year. The buses were overwhelmed. The lifts were... Not too overwhelmed, but occasionally overwhelmed, and and uh, Icon was kind of a convenient target for some, but it, but it definitely was a real a real backlash.
1: Do you think that it'll help that Jackson Hole said, okay, season pass holders, we're also going to include an Icon base pass with your pass.
0: I think that definitely appeased some people. I mean, especially when Icon keeps growing and growing and announcing new resorts. I just wish uh, I wish employees got the same deal as pass holders that get theirs yeah. through buying it. <laughs>
1: Okay, so you you get your employee pass, and then if you want an icon pass, you have to go buy one.
0: Yeah, we get we get a half price at all the icon places.
1: Nice. Okay, that's not a bad deal. No. So so you on your blog it says you clock at least 130 days a year. Are most of those at Jackson, or do you try to get
0: around? I travel as much as I can, so I I generally. We we work long days in lifts, so I usually work four days a week and then have three days to, to go. And the nice thing about Jackson is it's not really close to anything, but it's it's central to Montana, Utah, Colorado. In an, in an evening's drive you can get a lot of places. So what do you like? Do you try to mix it up or you
1: you have certain spots you like to hit?
0: I, I mostly go based on who has new lifts now because that's how I take pictures from my website. But uh, so big sky, I've been there a lot lately and I and I really like the skiing there. Colorado, Summit County has a bunch of cool stuff going on good skiing utah too i mean salt lake is really an easy trip from jackson and there's so many resorts there within not very far
1: so you definitely get your days in uh despite the fact that you're sending people up the mountain quite a bit so as as the the kind of authority on this what are the lifts that maybe the top five that we absolutely have to hit in our lifetime
0: oh i would say the mothership which is kt22 at squaw okay the jackson hole tram up in Canada, the Gondola Kicking Horse is almost its almost as big as the Jackson Hole Tram, but it's a gondola and wow. awesome skiing up there. That's three. The Single Chair at Mad River Glen. And let's see. I'll go with another icon, the Snowbird Tram.
1: Those are all good ones. And I'm honored that the East Coast made the cut. That Mad River Single Chair is interesting. I, I've heard, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I've heard that's actually the fastest fixed grip lift in the country.
0: Uh, that is probably true. I uh, unfortunately have never ridden that lift. I have hiked up underneath it to photograph it, but uh, it was in the fall and it wasn't running. So it's definitely on my list. Next time
1: you're out East, you got to hit it. They actually replaced it a few years ago. So they're committed to it and they're fixed it up. So it should be good for a long, long time to come.
0: And then uh, right near there, my other one I'm really need to get is uh, the Slide Brook Express at Sugarbush, which is one of the longest chairlifts in the world.
1: Yeah, that, that's quite a trip. It's also very cold, as you know, as a, as a guy who skied in the northeast. Uh, that is a long time to be on that lift in February.
0: I skied Sugarbush last spring, and by the time I was there, it was after Jackson closed, and they, they had uh, closed Mount Ellen, so no Slidebrook. One yeah. one day.
1: Yeah, that, that's a terrific mountain, though. I think they were open until May 5th this year, so they, they really do a great job, and that Slidebrook Express is a pretty special lift. so. Um, all right, Peter. Well, I, I really appreciate your time today. I know it's about dinner time for you, so I'll, I'll let you go, but, but thanks so much for joining us.
0: Okay. Thank you for having me, Stuart.
1: That's Peter Landsman, founder and editor of Lift Blog. Lots of good stuff there. Peter's always on the move, visiting these lifts firsthand. Document them to build out his site, liftblog.com. Check it out. Subscribe to his email updates. Peter stays on top of lift News better than anyone in the industry. If you like that interview and you like the show, go to iTunes, leave us a review and a rating. Also follow us on Twitter at Storm Ski Journal and on Facebook. You'll also want to subscribe to the Storm Skiing Newsletter at skiing.substack.com. That is the main communications channel for the storm, for the podcast, for the newsletter. Subscribe to that today. Next up, I've got a really good one. This is a big deal. Boyne Resort's CEO Steven Kircher will join me on the storm. We're going to talk about Sugarloaf, we're going to talk about Sunday River, we're going to talk about Big Sky, and we're going to talk about a whole lot more. Boyne is the third largest ski resort owner and it has been family owned and operated for more than 70 years. They are a huge player and you will hear from the top guy firsthand next week.
0: The Storm Skiing Podcast
2: is a Quicksilver Films production.